Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me put on more shows like this, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up to become a patron. Patron get access patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive content and we're gonna have a little bit of fun with some of our patrons today so uh, yeah there's a lot of advantages to becoming a patron of Sly Flourish you get a lot of material that I've been working on you get previews of all kinds of stuff and I'm always looking for ways to try to to try to give back to the patrons of Sly Flourish so give it a look and see if it's for you so yeah let's take a look at today's list of topics I got a lot of fun things to talk about today what I've been doing is throughout the week I've been keeping up notes and then uh, putting together a notion, and then I come up with what we're going to talk about in the show. First, so last week we talked about Cobalt Fight Club. Cobalt, which had been maintained for many years, five years or so, was down. Well, the good news is the code for Cobalt Fight Club was under, not, not the GSL, what is it called? MIT license or something like that. It was up on GitHub, and it had been picked up by a new group. So Cobalt Fight Club is back. It is now called Cobalt Plus Club rather than Cobalt Club. So it has a new URL, which means that people are going to have to find it. But it exists, and it is done by the same people that did Fantasy Calendar. They're, 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 they look like people who are improving the world through code, which is always awesome. And they are doing so here as well. They picked it up, and uh, it's running. It's running very fast. You know, you can go for my all-time favorite, Balor. You know, add a Balor to your group. Add uh, four level one players. Tells you, oh, hey, that's deadly. Here you got a deadly encounter. It's got a way to manage encounters. Maybe. I don't know. Manage players. Run encounters, which I think goes to a whole other site. So, yeah. But, you know, for all the people that use Cobalt Fight Club for managing their encounters, Cobalt Fight Club uh, is now back at a new improved URL. And given that we were talking about that last week, I thought it relevant to bring it up again this week. So, happy to see it back. I want to preview. Today's preview is for a game called Esper Genesis. So my friend, Rich Gleskifer, put together a 5e science fiction RPG. It is a complete RPG. It, it, it does not sit atop the fifth edition of D&D. It uses the 5e SRD as its rule set. And but yet it can use all of the stuff that exists in 5e, which is uh, if, you've, if you've heard me talk about it before. Let's let's show the product page here. I'm going to pull up the product itself too. The I had talked before about the idea of plug and play plug and play 5e stuff. Uh, the idea that you could find that you could you could pick up particular products that would my cat is knocking something around. What is that cat doing? Cats, man. Could you get 5th edition products and have them sort of plug and play into the existing 5e core books? An example would be that man, I got to go see what that cat's up to. I'll be right back. You know, I hear all this racket outside, of course, and then I go and there's like a cat sitting there like, what? Right. And then there's another cat that's like inside of a big tube and it's like, what? And I'm like, man, guys don't have any, no recognition at all for the fact that I'm trying to stream a show here. So yeah, I think it's very interesting to look at sort of plug and play D&D products. Like what if you wrote a new monster manual that could fit in and maybe even replace the existing 5th edition monster manual. And you could kind of do that a little bit. I've had entire adventures where I just used like Toma Beast 2. So the neat thing about Esper Genesis is that it sit, it's its whole 
it's its own RPG, its own full RPG. But you can drop in if you have particular monsters or you want to reskin monsters from 5th edition D&D, you can do so. I presume it works with classes and stuff like that, but that'd be pretty weird because it's a very heavy science fiction class. So let me pull up the PDFs. I should have set this up before. So the so Esper Genesis comes in three books, very much like the... Is that the... That's the threat database. There we go. Esper Genesis comes in three books, very similar to the way that 5th edition D&D comes out. It's got essentially a player's handbook, a monster manual, and a dungeon master's guide. But in, this, in, this, in, their, in their names, it's the core manual, the threats database. I think that's what it says down there, threats database. My PDF viewer isn't, isn't viewing it all perfectly. And the, whoops, that's not it. And the, what is that thing? The master technician's guide. My PDF viewer is not rendering that title perfectly. So all three books you can pick up on Drive RPG. They are also available in print, and I'll have links. I'll have links for all of that in the show notes. And yeah, so so Rich, Rich, uh, and, and in full disclosure, Rich gave me copies of each of these. Uh, but I had I had picked up the core book before, but he gave me he, he sent me review copies for both the Threat Database and the Master Technician's Guide. Master Technician's Guide I think just came out. It's a relatively new. It's a relatively new book. The thing that jumps right at me is art. The art in this is just incredible. Like they've done an amazing job of doing the of of, of all of the art throughout these books, and they are big books. The core book is three hundred and four pages. The Threat Database is 224 pages, and the Master Technician's Guide is 240 pages. So tons of stuff, right? Yeah, and Picture says, another gaming system I'll never have time to play, but I must collect. And that's that's the way I feel about it. I, I don't mind that. Like, I don't... Obviously, it's really cool when you can play it. And, and what I would like to do is actually go to, like, a convention and play one-shot games and stuff like this. Just amazing art. So having 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 given a good skim read, this isn't really a review. I realize I talk about like reviews and it's not a preview because it's already out. So it's just like a skim review, right? And one of the things that, that, you know, you can tell where the motivations that built this game from. There's a lot of like Halo influence and certainly Mass Effect, you know, heavy, heavy Mass Effect influence here. And, you know, so if you like these sort of deep... You know, deep science fiction, lots of alien races. You know, this is this is right. If they are very, you know, kind of pulp. This looks like a very pulp science fiction thing. All of the stuff that you would want if you wanted to kind of mash up a new world that is sort of Mass Effect with Star Wars and everything else. It really, it really captures a lot of this. It's a full level one to twenty game. It's got tons and tons of material to to build stuff. But what I again, what I really dig is the 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 artwork. You know, I just think the art is just amazing. All 5th edition based, so which means that it's pretty easy to, if you were going to, if you had friends that wanted to play a science fiction RPG, you can certainly, it's very easy to pick up because you have sci-fi elements. It does have, especially in the Master Technician's Guide, new rules for a lot of things. So if you if you look at like the uh, the core manual, the core manual actually follows very much the format of the player's handbook. Right of the of the fifth edition D and D player's handbook, it follows that format a lot, you know, in how you build your races and classes and everything else. And then, but if you look at the technician's guide, which is kind of like the the DMG, right? This is the game the game master's guide. It has all new rules for things that you would not that are are based on having a science fiction world. Some of these are like matrix combat, you know, how to fight combat inside if you're if you're fighting inside the matrix. Right, the idea of fighting in a virtual world. It has shipbuilding guidelines for building your own sort of spacecraft, so that you can. You know, a whole thing about starships and star bases, because that is sort of a big piece of what you would want in a science fiction game. Is beyond your character. How do you fly around in ships and stuff like that? And I don't believe that that is covered pretty pretty heavily. This is the am I in the right? This is the core manual. So yeah, there actually is a starships and space travel 
section. So I take that back. You know, it's got about 14 pages about how to do how to fly around in space which is really important. Instead of spells, they have these things called esper powers. I didn't really dig into exactly what an esper power is, but they essentially work very similar to the way that spells work, I imagine. And then lots of stuff about exploring the galaxy. That's all in the core, in the core book. So really, really cool, really, really cool stuff. Great, great artwork. You know, Rich, Rich Lescafer, and he was working with Brian Dalrymple, who did a lot of design. Brian, unfortunately, has, has passed away. He passed away about a, a few months ago, I think. And very sad to see him go. I ran into both of them at Winter Fantasy a couple years ago, and then I think a year ago, and had a really, it's one of those like, you know, Winter Fantasy is the best place to run into people. And we were just at the same breakfast bar, right? And I talked to them all about how to publish books like this, these great big core books. And Brian said, work with, his, his tip was for, for getting book publishers to, to, for getting a good publishers, work with yearbook publishers, work with people who do yearbooks, because in the off season, they're desperate for uh, books to publish. And they publish really, really like archival quality books with thread bound stuff. And uh, I thought that was really smart, you know, for, for building. He says, like, if you want to build a great big book that's going to actually hold up and last, go to a yearbook publisher. I thought that was really cool. Man, just the, the, the I can't imagine. When I look at it as a publisher, I can't imagine how much it costs <laughs> to do all this art. Schleskifer, on top, of, you know, on top of being an excellent game designer and everything else, is also a wonderful layout guy. And he has done the layout for this whole book. He's done the layout for a bunch of stuff. He is a DM Guild Adept author, as well as many other things that he's worked on. But you can just see the amount of... of you know, passion that went into these things. There's, there's definitely a sort of like a halo-y, you know, very halo-y sort of artwork there, right? So you can tell the influences here. And I love that, right? I love that. Like, we know what these things are and they're part of our, there's like, you know, that looks like right out of Mass Effect, right? So that idea of like just capturing the stuff that's really grabbed our attention and building an entire RPG around it is really, is really outstanding. So very, very cool, very, very cool thing. I think if I have one complaint... Uh, I will offer one 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 complaint, and I don't know if that this is something that they can do anything about. It's hard when it's three books, right? And they have some quick start rules. I think the DM, I think on on Drive Through RPG, Esper Genesis has the basic rules, right? And I I presume I have not looked at them, so I'm not sure, but I would presume this is enough for you to be able to run. Yeah, so there's a Game Master's Basic Rules. Okay, and is this is this free? How much does it cost? It's free, so you can get the Esper Genesis basic rules for players, and then the Game Master's basic rules, which is also free, GMs, and have enough to at least give the game a good solid try. I'll link to all of this stuff uh, in the show notes. You can, for those of you on Twitch here today, go to DriveThruRPG and you can pick it up. So if you want to see if it's the kind of thing you like, you can, for nothing, go pick up two different PDFs and it gives you everything you need in order to be able to play. That's sort of like the equivalent of what you would find in the starter set, right? It's a few levels of play, uh, a, few, a few basic monsters, and, and you're off to the races. So uh, really, really great way. But yeah, the, the idea, like, I think to how Shadow of the Demon Lord and 13th Age and stuff like that managed to kind of pack their entire RPGs into a single volume. And I think if, if, if I were making an entire RPG, I would probably work really hard to try to make it one book. But I think that if you look at the amount of material that it exists, and if you wanted the full level 1 to 20 experience for a game like this, then I don't think they'd be able to pack all this. Like, it's, it's you know, the three books, which I think you can get for like $60 for PDFs for all three, you know, and it's what, 900 pages worth of material or something like that. 800 it, I think it looks like more rough, roughly around 800 800 pages of material again crazy good design beautiful beautiful artwork 
So, yeah. Mestigar says, I just think I just heard Mike saying he's going to make an RPG. Nope. No plans to make my own RPG. I always, you know, everybody thinks about it, right? Everybody's always got like, oh, if it were up to me, what would I do? But no. Yeah, amazing just amazing stuff. So this is Esper Genesis, and I recommend it. I recommend, certainly recommend going to Drive Through RPG and picking up the sample chapters and seeing if you dig it. And even if you just want to like fall, I, I tell you, I like them. I like them like I like novels, right? I like to pick up RPGs and I like to see what they do with it, and I like to fall into them. And I certainly love browsing the art, right? Just, just, oh yeah, it's just, it's such a great escape, right? Such a great way to like get away from, get away from the, the specialist, right? A Death Strike specialist that looks like a rogue, a rogue class. Man, look at that, right? I don't know. Just amazing stuff. So, Esper Genesis. Check it out. It's available on Drive-Thru RPG. You can also pick up hardcover uh, hardcover versions. Have I played it? I have not played it. No, I would love to. I missed an opportunity to play it at Winter Fantasy. I wish I had. So, I definitely want to I definitely want to give it a try. It is not only is it a D20 based. Nickel Nick No Break says, "Is it a D20 based system?" It is a 5e based system. So, if you are familiar with the 5th edition of D&D, you are familiar, it will be very easy to pick this up. Just imagine it's reskinned races and class, reskin I, I presume the monsters. Let's take a look at some of the monsters here. I didn't really I didn't have much of a chance. Look at that cover. Isn't it amazing? God. So great. I'm envious. I'm envious of Oh, and okay. I, one thing I wanted to check out was how they handle encounter building. I wondered if he had a different take on encounter building. I'll have to look at that. I'll have to look at that another time and see and see how he did that. Because I don't think it was in, it wasn't in the core book, obviously. Aberrant, right? Very IV style stat blocks. So uh, very cool. Oh, look at that. Aberrant controller. Is that a ship? Oh, there we go. Aberrant stalker. Really great, really cool stuff. So yeah, give it a, give it a look. Check it out. Look at that dude. He's angry, angry, angry looking dude. Alifax, Alifax Wallet Warrior, aggressive. Yeah, and you can see where a lot of the influence of these do they do they look like do they look like orcs? This is kind of push, blur, phase step, spatial path, energy blades, neat stuff. So yeah, if you're looking for a science fiction version of Five E, I can't imagine picking anything other than this. It is a really really solid RPG. It has it, you know Rich has worked on it for a long time, and it's a it's beautiful. And I would definitely, if I were picking, if I were playing a 5e version of a science fiction version of 5e, I would definitely be starting with this. But man, I, I don't know. The, the thing that just absolutely blows me away is the art. The art is just amazing. Excellent. So give it a, give it a look. And what else? Arby's Dice. Oh, finally. Right? Back by popular demand. Because I tell you, it's been six years, and I've been thinking to myself, where are my Arby's dice, man? How come Arby's hasn't gotten in on this 5e bandwagon yet? I just can't can't get my head around it, right? But finally, it's here. Yeah, what a ridiculous situation. Uh, and of course, people bought them. I, I believe that inside each of these little dice is a little piece of roast beef that, they, that they've stuck inside of acrylic so that you can enjoy... You can enjoy your little bit of Arby's and bring it to you <laughs> whenever you go to your any of your gaming conventions. I think, <laughs> gross, I don't think, I think it's supposed to be a little hat. I think it's supposed to be the Arby's hat. But I kind of like the idea that they stuck a little piece of roast beef inside of each of their dice. So it's just a hat. I know, I know. Look at that. I kind of like it. It's a big roast beef. So what I, <laughs> what I kind of dig about this is, yeah, we have the meats dice, right? That Teos, Teos Abadia Alpha Stream often talks about the D&D baloney, <laughs> right? Which was back in the, 
Back, he found it. He actually found pictures of it. Back in the 80s when D&D was a really big thing and like there was D&D branded everything, one of the things he found in South America was D&D branded sandwich meat. And I think it ended up being that like it was like it had it was like San Oscar Mayer bologna that had like D and D cards in there and had like D and D branded stuff on them. And the question was like, is 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 fifth edition D and D ever going to get to that point? And I think we're pretty close when you have a Wendy's RPG, and you have you know, and Wendy, <laughs> and then all the fast food places like we need to get on this RPG nonsense, man. And so next thing you know, is you have Arby's Arby's dice. And I got to be honest, like they, they're not the worst looking dice I've ever seen. Although I really don't like it when you rebrand numbers on the dice with your with your brand. But I imagine that like if I was a collector, right? This this is like when the fall of society hits, and you're sitting around the campfire, and you're talking about like you know how capitalism collapsed to the entire global system you you can represent it by by pulling out your pocket full of arby's D D dice right and, and that was kind of the pinnacle of society right there so i thought it was amusing enough to talk about and, and of course they are completely sold out but who knows you know big b's inevitable cholesterol so i was amused by the arby's dice and i and i wanted to bring them up because they're so they're so funny less funny and more interesting more actually valuable to our D&D games is an article that Alex, uh, Justin Alexander posted on the Alexandrian about a concept called non-focal random encounters I really I, as soon as I hit this article and started reading I was like yes yes exactly this this is this is what we're talking about here and his his point is that random encounters can happen to people other than the characters Right. I think it's sort of the the summary of this whole idea that you if you have other groups of NPCs that are off doing things, one of the things you can do is say, like, did what kind of encounters do they get involved in? Right. And so he brings up the example of Mandalorian where where our where Mando is off going on an adventure and he parked his ride. And he comes back and the Jawas have wrecked his ride, right? And they're stripping it for parts. And then he gets involved in a great big adventure, having to rebuild his ship and deal with the Jawas and then doing the quest for the Jawas and so on. And his point was like that Mando didn't get hit by a random encounter. The ship got hit by a random encounter. So the, the question is like in your D&D game, where, where can random encounters sort of hit on a perpendicular nature or, or go after different things? And he offers a... He offers a an idea, which is like, if you sort of write out a list of all of the touch points, what he refers to, right, as these non, the, the, the non-focal, you know, the non-focal, i.e. they're not, they're not focused on you. What are those touch points? You know, identity, he brings this up by saying, identify what the PCs care about and then roll encounters for those. And so you might have your list of like, here are the 12 major touch points that the characters have and then roll the dice and say, what happens there? So you know, and you could say like, and it, it's sort of a way to keep the world alive, be outside of the point of view of the characters, but they can come in and see. So you might say like, okay, one of the touch points, like, let's try one. Let's try one just for, you might say one of the touch points is East Haven, right? The town of East Haven as one of the 10 towns. We're going to do, 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 bring up East Haven. And we're going to say, so the characters aren't at East Haven currently, but maybe something happens at East Haven. Right. And we can sort of figure that out. And what we'll do is we'll pull up the wilderness encounters and we'll say, like, as as Oral's stuff is going on, right? As Oral as as the as the the the, the rhyme, as the rhyme of, of Icewind Dale continues, it means that like nature is is sort of getting closer to Ten Towns, right? That like Ten Towns is getting more and more wild and things are going on. So like what happens there? And so we rolled a twenty. 
right? And we could say that like East Haven got attacked by, so I rolled and I rolled Peritons, right? And so what if it's like hunters at East Haven came out there and saw that Peritons have come in? And maybe in the middle of the night, one of the Peritons swooped down and ripped out the heart of one of the members of one of the one of the people of East Haven and dropped the body right in the center of the town. And now the town's like, there are freaking Peritons right here. Like they're supposed to be out in the wild and they're right here, right? And so when the characters come back, they can learn about this, right? They can find out things have been happening in the town while you've been gone, right? So that there's that kind of neat idea about dropping random encounters on things the characters care about instead of just uh, dealing with the characters themselves. Another thing that I like to do that I think I think ties into this is a random encounter doesn't have to be the actual encounter that's happening right now. It could be signs of an encounter that that came by. So an, ex an example there is like, let's say gnolls. Instead of having the gnolls, right? Let's see, ravenous and horrifying are the gnolls that prowl Icewind Dale. Only the small numbers keep them from averaging 10 towns. 1d4 plus three gnolls, cackling with glee as they move in for the kill, right? Instead of, if you don't want to have the encounter, if you don't want to have them fight a bunch of gnolls, you might say they find the remnants of the gnolls, right? They might find another creature, or maybe a, a couple of hunters that were that were ripped apart by the gnolls or just clearly signs that they were murdered and their bodies were taken away, right? And that can tie into other things, but the characters don't have to see the gnolls themselves. The characters might arrive after the encounter had already occurred. Another thing is they might get signs of it. So instead of being there, and they get attacked by gnolls. It's like they're there, but their perception tells you, like, I can smell gnolls on the air and I can hear their cackling. Do we want to deal with the gnolls, right? We, we know they're out there. We know they're dangerous. Do we want to go handle them? Or are we just going to keep going on our journey and we should be fine and we shouldn't have to encounter them? So that way you offer some options to the players, right? An encounter becomes options to the characters, uh, options to the characters and options to the players to decide do they want to deal with it or not. So you can have, instead of having an encounter that just, hits the characters. We now have four different ways, if we include Justin Alexander's way, of handling random encounters in our game and still having them be random encounters. One is that a random, can, a random encounter can occur for somebody that the characters care about, but not the characters themselves. Two, you can have a random encounter occur before the characters arrive. So when they get there, they see the results of a random encounter that already occurred. Three, they could find out that a random encounter is on the way, right? Without, maybe they see them from a, a distance, but they don't, they're not dealing with them just then. Four, it's a regular random encounter. Now, here's another way, which is you can have two encounters together. So I had it where I wanted the characters to meet a particular NPC, and I decided that I was going to have the NPC in the middle of a random encounter. So in this case, the characters show up, they see the NPC, and they see that the NPC is dealing with a random encounter. And in that case, they were like, I'm not sure whose side I'm on. And that added an interesting thing, too. So you can sort of combine random encounters. If you have maybe an encounter that's fixed, maybe the fixed encounter gets attacked by a random encounter, right? So it's a really powerful way to use random encounters in ways that are not just, hey, the characters are wandering around and they get attacked by a Yeti. It's like, what if the Yeti is fighting crag cats, right? Or what if the gnolls are fighting a Yeti? Or what if you get there and the Yeti has already killed a bunch of gnolls and wandered off, right? So really interesting ways to use random encounters that are that that exist, that really make the world feel real. And they excite you too, because you're still rolling dice. So as a DM, you know, it's pretty cool the kinds of things that you see and you come up with ideas and you can come up with them during the game, which is really, really neat. So 
Really great article. Justin Alexander always has a way to kind of take an idea that's like been on the periphery of my thought and then turn it into an article and give it a name like non-focal random encounters. And I really, I really, you know, Justin Alexander is the guy that, that introduced me to point crawls and all kinds of other things. So check out Alexandrian. Fantastic blog. One of the best blogs for, for RPGs, for D&D and for RPGs on the internet. Really, really good. I'm a backer of his Patreon. I'm a patron subscriber to Justin Alexander and he posts new articles all the time. Really great stuff. And yeah, very, very smart dude. So yeah, check that out and, and, and think about how you can use random encounters in non-traditional ways. So one of the things I wanted to do and we are going to do today, if you are a patron of Sly Flourish, I posted an article and, and sent out an email next, last, last week in which I said, hey, I want to do some videos addressing topics from patrons. And I got a lot of responses, which is awesome, right? And my plan is to, as I get responses, I, and I'm probably going to post these every so often, but then I'm going to wait until I've like dug through them quite a bit till the, the, they die down and then I'll do another one later because I get a lot of questions. And it's a way for patrons to kind of bring up topics they'd like to see, topics that they like to see discussed. And there's, a, there's probably four different things that can happen with them, similar to the random encounters. One that if it's something I could probably talk about in a few minutes, I will drop here into, and we'll talk about here on the talk show. If it's something that's like a good topic for a dedicated video, I'll actually do a whole dedicated like three or four minute video just talking about that one particular topic. If I think it's something that's of good general interest and really can really, you know, really help a lot of DMs, I might take it and turn it into a topic for a video. Three, I might just answer it directly on the Patreon. So I'm going to do that this afternoon. I'm going to go through the questions and the ones that I have answers to because a lot of them like I've answered before. Not everybody has seen everything that I've done. So I either have articles on Sly Flourish or I have videos that I've done in the past that talk about some of these topics already. And to the person who asked the question, I'll say, here's a, here's a video and here's the topic. Uh, I do that quite a bit. I'm on Twitter and on Reddit and on the Discord and stuff like that. Or four, if some questions I don't expect will be the kinds of things that are really for me to answer, right? Like there's definitely areas that I'm just not an expert in and haven't really thought about and haven't really done anything with. And I'm not going to talk about them because like I don't have an opinion on it. So there's probably a few like that. And I'll probably mark those in the patron too. And then a nice thing is you can vote on other people's questions. If you like a question, give it a heart, right? Give it a favorite. And if I see a bunch of favorites, I'll know like, even if it's a topic I'm not talking about, maybe it's one I should research and really get into because clearly people care about this thing. So today I picked out three questions that I wanted to talk about. The first one was from Sean H. Uh, Sean H, a patron of Sly Flourish, who said, you've stated before that we should not balance encounters and instead make encounters that make sense in the setting and situation. I do. I've, I've, I've done videos and many articles and videos on this. I completely agree. However, in my experience, a vast majority of the 5e player base expects balanced scaling encounters. They expect every encounter to be quote unquote winnable. I'm quoting quote. How do you break this expectation and encourage players to gather information about the potential dangers of an encounter so that they can make informed decisions and risk assessments? Really good question. So I, I, you know, he's right that I'd say that you shouldn't really be worried about balanced encounters. You start first, as we know, what's the, what's my method, the slight flourish, lazy dungeon master method of building encounters. And they, they follow two steps. First step, build encounters that make sense for the situation. Given the situation of the game, given the current situation in the story, given where they are, what kind of monsters make sense? Maybe it's random tables that help you with this. Maybe it's you knowing that where they are, there are certain kinds of monsters that make sense. And you build the size if the, the types of creatures and the number of creatures based on that first. Second thing you do is give yourself a little gauge and be like, is this deadly or not, right? And we will quick, quick, quick uh, primer on, on deadliness. An encounter may be deadly if the sum total of monster challenge ratings 
is equal to is greater than one quarter of the sum total of character levels or one half of character levels if they're above fourth level. I'll say it again because it's kind of complicated. If the sum total of monster challenge ratings, you add up all the monster challenge ratings of all the monsters in your encounter, if that number is greater than one fourth of the sum total of all character levels, i.e. you then take all the character levels and add them together and then divide it by four. And if the monster challenge ratings is greater than one fourth of the total number of character levels, that encounter may be deadly if they're first to fourth level. If they're fifth level or above, it's half character levels. So you sum up all the character levels, divide it by two, and if your monster challenge ratings are greater than that number, it's potentially deadly. That doesn't mean it will be deadly. It means it might be deadly. And you want to know that, right? So an interesting thing about Sean H's question is it assumes that if you're doing an unbalanced encounter, that it's unbalanced in the difficult range, that it's it's unbalanced in the deadly range. But this brings up something I've wanted to talk about before, which is the asymptotic curve of deadliness in monsters in D&D, which is essentially a fancy ass way of saying really deadly monsters are rare and really weak monsters are common. There are many, many more giant rats than there are ancient red dragons. The what now, says Sunjammer. So the asymptotic curve of monster difficulty, i.e. if you imagine a curve like this where numbers of monsters, it's actually more like this, right? If the number of monsters is your x-axis, difficulty of monsters is your y-axis, it falls off. It is not, it is not linear. It is, a, it is an asymptotic curve. It, is, it bends around. I should draw it. We have, we're going to draw this. Difficult number, let's see, difficulty number. That is what it looks like, right? You have the number of monsters and the difficulty of the monsters. There are many more monsters of low difficulty than there are monsters of high difficulty. That generally is the reality of the world most of the time. Where that's not, uh, yeah, uh, let's see, Scipio says monster difficulty in the world is left skewed. There's another, another way of referring to it. I think it's asymptotic, isn't it? Is that what they call it? Asymptotic curve? Really fancy way of saying like red, ancient red dragons are rare. Like how many ancient red dragons are flying around the Forgotten Realms? Not a lot. Like probably less than five, right? And how many giant rats are there? Shit tons. Lots of giant rats out there, right? How many kobolds? Lots of kobolds. Lots of goblins. Lots of bandits, right? How many bandits to veterans do you think there are? There aren't more veterans than bandits, right? There are more bandits than veterans. There are more people who have not yet stuck a shiv in a dude. Then there are people who have stuck shivs in lots of dudes, right? Because, you know, that's just how it works out. There are places where that might not be true. But even in hell, if you go into Avernus, there are many more dretches than there are pit fiends, right? That's just, is it dretches? Are dretches the, what's the, what's the lowest level? Mains, right? There are many more mains than there are pit fiends. It's not the other direction. So I mispronounced Avernus. No, I didn't. Vernus, is it pronounced Avernus? Lemurs. Yeah. So there are many more. Right. So, so my point is that if we are building for what makes sense in the situation, most of the time the battles are going to be easier, not harder. So we're making the assumption here that like the player, you know, and, and he brings up that the player, many 5e players, I'm going to change most. He says the vast majority. I don't know if that's true, right? Like, imagine the kind of surveys you'd have to do to figure that out. Let's turn vast majority into many, right? Because it, I'm sure it's many, but like we don't know if it's the majority or not. So uh, many of the 5e player base expect balanced encounters. And, and they expect that they'll be able to go into a situation and, and maybe defeat it. So we'll, we'll talk about that time when, when they face 
a foe that could be potentially deadly. And I'll tell you what you do. You tell them. You know, you look at these foes and you consider this could be the most dangerous encounter you've ever seen. You, you wonder whether or not you're going to be able to survive this. And you tell the players that. You wonder whether you're going to be able to survive. You may not be able to survive this encounter, right? And let them know, right? But also don't, don't be a schmuck about it, right? Don't put them in situations where they are facing insurmountable foes and have very few options to deal with it. Make sure they have options. If, if an ancient white dragon is flying down and harassing the characters, don't have it land in front of them and then say, like, if you run, I'm going to freeze you all to death and you all die, right? Don't, don't limit their options. Like, make, let them see it far away. Give them a chance to react to it how they want to react to it without having to, you know, like completely supplicate themselves, right? Like, give them options just like they would have options otherwise, right? And give, give them options in the encounter to deal with really difficult situations. Make sure they have negotiation options, exploration options, maybe a combat option that is, is, is not directly related to maybe they fight their way back out again. Give them some opportunity to make choices so that they don't get railroaded into how they deal with an insurmountable foe. Because essentially when you throw up like a an ancient blue dragon against the characters or an ancient white dragon against the characters, what you're telling them is you're not going to be able to fight it. So now I've just limited your options to other things. Well, if you take away the option to directly combat something, you better have put in another option that that they can do that's, you know, like that. Maybe they can trick it somehow. Maybe they can... You know, make it easier for them to do the other things in order to get around it. But most of the time when I'm talking about when I'm talking about building what makes sense for the situation, most of the time it's going to be easier fights. It's going to be fights that are not balanced. They, they are not difficult. And this is the example where I played in an Adventurers League adventure and we were tier two. So we were like fifth to tenth level. Pretty powerful, right? Fifth to tenth level characters. There's there's not a lot of those in the world. And we were, this was uh, dead in one of the Fae adventures. And we were going down the street and the, the, all, the, all the police and everything, all the, all the guards and everything were gone. They were busy like handling stuff. And we saw some people looting. I've mentioned this story before. We've men- we saw a bunch of people looting a dress shop or something like that. And we were like, hey, stop that. And they turned around like, who the hell are you? There's no guards. And we're like, well, we're, you know, let's throw down. And it was like, it's three swashbucklers and two bandit captains. And we're like, why is it three swashbucklers and band? Why are two bandit captains and three swashbucklers robbing a dress shop? They they lead stuff like swashbucklers, you know. And it, it didn't make any sense. Like, why would swashbucklers be robbing a dress shop? Like that should have been bandits, right? And it makes sense if it's bandits. If you have nine or ten ruffians breaking into a dress shop, just have us do that. Have us fight the ruffians, right? They're challenge rating one eight. Who cares? If we're seventh level and that one fireball can get rid of all of them, like that's fun. Throwing a fireball and blowing away a bunch of bandits because they're a bunch of jackasses. That's a good time, right? So in that circumstance, they were, they were trying to make it balanced in the other direction and it didn't make any sense. Now, you know, likewise, you know, you wouldn't have seven ancient blue dragons flying around the town all at once, right? You're like, why, why are all these ancient blue? There aren't even that many ancient blue dragons. So more than likely, when you're building a situation, when you're building creatures around a situation, and depending on the level of the characters, uh, those situations are going to end up being easier, not harder. Which gets to my whole thing, like run easy fights, right? Easy fights are fine. Do not shy away from easy fights. 
you know, throw, you don't, don't do them all the time, but they, they can be really interesting. And just like the, how do you get your way out of the battle against the ancient white dragon when you're seventh level, you know, just, just like you have that, you can, you, you are also offering up a lot of options to players when they like, Hey, there's two thugs that are trying to rob the char characters are seventh level. There's five of them. Two thugs come out they go, all the guards are gone, man. Give us your money. Right. And the players are like, should we kill them? Like, we can obviously just take these guys out. Should we? And they're like, I don't know. They're just two guys. Like, you know, and they, they like, maybe you should just negotiate. Maybe you should just give them some gold, right? Maybe just intimidate them and pay them off anyway because they're just poor dudes. And suddenly you get this like interesting scene that isn't just combat, right? It's like they can easily intimidate these guys. They can certainly kill them. But, you know, but there's lots of different ways for them to interact with these situations where they're facing easy foes. So yeah, in answer to Sean H's question, the answer is expect that most of the battles are probably going to be easier, not harder. And if you're running a hard thing and your characters are expecting a balanced encounter and you don't have it, you need to do two things. One, you need to just tell them this is a deadly encounter. You, if, you, if you try to take on this creature head on, it's very likely somebody's going to die and maybe all of you will die. And make it clear there are other options and make sure there are other options. Maybe if they are fighting the Demi-Lich and it's two Death Knight guards, maybe instead it's, you know, that all we have to do is shatter those arcane pillars and that, you know, breaks the thing. So we'll, we'll have to hold them off, right? But if we can hold them off just enough to get this other thing, you know, Dave Chalker's combat out, like what is their other way of succeeding in this encounter that isn't defeating this insurmountable foe, right? Make sure there's another option so that they can do that. So I hope that answers Sean H's question. This is fun. I like these questions. Raymond C asks, how do you deal with greater and greater deviation from plotted content when running long pre-written campaigns? I want to stay as lazy as possible without railroading the players. This is an excellent question. And actually, I think there were a few comments on the Patreon, on, the, on this Patreon post that brought this up. And the question, it, it, you know, if I, if I understand the question right, it's basically... When you're building a campaign, you have a bunch of things that you expect your campaign to do, and it sort of follows that path. How do you make sure that, like, as you want to offer options so that the players can go different directions and they want to get there? And uh, I talked about this. Uh, I did like a I did a stream yesterday. That's not on video anywhere. It's just on Twitch. Uh, and I talked about this. I talked about this a little bit. And there's a few ways. And one is when you have that outline for your campaign, make sure it's. I mean, this is you, you asked me, so I'm going to give you. You know, I'm going to say make sure, but, you know, of course, we all have different ways that we do this. But generally, when you when you think about your campaign, focus on the big beats and not the, the not the trail. Right. Don't think about how they're going to get from point A to point B to point C. But I, I like to know what my big beats are. Right. And I, the, the example I give is when I when I was figuring out my Eberron campaign, I knew what the. I knew what the goal of the campaign was, right? I knew where the campaign was going to head, which was stop the second morning, right? Stop the, you know, stop the weapon that's going to create the second morning and in Eberron, right? And I told the players, right? So they knew from the get-go that that was their goal, right? And then I said, I want to have two major arcs. I want to have a Sharn arc and I want to have a, I want to have a Sharn arc and I want to have a Mornland arc, right? So I know that at some point during the game, they're going to go from Sharn to the Mornland. I also knew I wanted to have 
Karshak the Sentient Train. So I'm like, somewhere in there, I'm going to put in Karshak the Sentient Train. We'll figure out how that goes in. So I had some ideas about things I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to have the city of making. Uh, I knew I originally thought I was going to have the city of Metrol. I ended up throwing out Metrol and stuck to Eston. I, I knew there was going to be some air. You know, I wanted an airship fight. I wanted to have, you know, there's a lot of different things that I want to have. But there was sort of like a loose box of things that I wanted to do. Not this like narrow outline and narrow path about where things go. So, and that worked out pretty well. The other one is focusing on fronts. That instead of building your plotted adventure, you think about the fronts and, and you know, who are basically the villains, right? Who are the main villains in this adventure? And a villain doesn't necessarily need to be a sentient thing. The villain could be the coming war. It could be a meteor coming out of the sky. It could be a plague, right? Or some natural disaster. But often it's a villain, right? And you say like, who are the three villains that are currently involved in this campaign? And what are they doing? Right? What, are they, what goal do they have and what steps are they taking to get there? And what are they doing right now? And when you follow the villains, right, and you put yourself in the mind of the villains and say, what is, what is Leto Skull doing right now? Well, he's negotiating. Leto Skull is in the position where he is negotiating with the Orem. He is a member of the Orem, and he's trying to get other Orem members to give him more power and potential to try to, to, try to you know, achieve his goal, which is he wants his own weapon of mourning, and he wants to own it because then he feels like he'll have unlimited, you know, unlimited power, right? But he's also a former member of the Droam. And so he's trying to trick the Droam into making them think that he works for them as well, right? And so he's got these like things that he's doing. So how is he doing this? Well, he sent his agent into, you know, he has an agent and he sent the agent into Morn, the Mornland to try to find out where the location of Metro is. And he had another agent that is figuring out where to uh, get the various components that one needs. He has secretly fed information to the Emerald Claw so that the Emerald Claw will do this. So you put yourself in the villain and the villain's doing these things. And then that tells you, ah, oh, so that's what's happening in the world. And then you expose some of this to the, to the characters and to the players, and then they decide how to navigate it. So... What you've done is you've sort of built a larger situation that's broken down into smaller situations, and then the players decide which situations they're going to get involved in. And they can, these situations can evolve, right? That like eventually the Emerald Claw just fails, right? Like if the players are constantly in the Emerald Claw's way, eventually the Emerald Claw cannot succeed with what they do. And they they fall off, right? They get defeated early. And now... Leto Skull's pissed off because he had the Emerald Claw secretly doing work for him. They didn't even know they were working for him, right? But they're gone now because the players took care of it. So now Leto Skull needs another angle. So the world then changes how that how that goes, right? So the answer is state don't don't plot, right? If you say you know plotted content, we try not to plot the content. You know, if your if your question is what you know the play, I need the players to do X. If ever you say to yourself, I need the players to do X, you're probably in trouble. Unless it's I expect that the players want to solve the core of this adventure, right? And that's where you do your session zero. Your characters want to stop the second morning. Why is up to them, but that's the goal. They want to stop the second morning. Same thing if like Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, right? I've talked about this before. Or in, it wired into the character's backstory should be the plot of the adventure so that they never have to ask why they would want to follow through with what the core of the adventure is. You know, help the people of Ten Towns survive the endless night, right? Wire that into every character. All of the characters want to help the people of Ten Towns survive the endless night. In Descent into Avernus, it's, uh, you know, the characters want to, the characters want to protect El Terrell and serve the Hell Riders under Rhea Mantelmorn, right? All of the characters are are loyal to El Terrell, the Hell Riders, and Rhea Mantelmorn. And that way, when El Terrell falls into hell, they have a reason to go into hell to save it, right? So you want to make sure that whatever the main goal is, you know, you want to you want to look at a published adventure and say, what's the main goal of this adventure? Right. And then make sure that the characters are wired to 
follow through with that core of the adventure. That is about the only railroading, how they do it and what direction they take and what decisions they make to go there. That's up to them, right? And Frost Main, they're in all sorts of different directions. You're not plotting there other than eventually, you know, it's going to go a certain way. So I think that that is about as much as I can say about the idea of when you're doing long pre-written campaign. I guess, okay, so I, the key word is pre-written. So when you're doing a long pre-written campaign, how do you, how do you deal with the greater and greater deviation from plotted content? And the answer is you just kind of narrow. I mean, I don't even think I answered this question right. You, you just want to, you know, if, you, if you're running a plotted adventure, and this is where like a what do they call them? Like an adventure path is different, right? And I tend not to run adventure paths where, where like each chapter is its own major arc towards the story. But I think that the D you want people to be able to deviate, but they don't, they don't deviate away from the main thing. And it's, the question is like, where, you know, where do you put, you know, where do you, where do you put the options and how do you limit the options? So you want to make sure like they have options for how they accomplish it, but they're still going that direction. Right. Uh, I, I Waterdeep Dragon Heist is like this. You know where Waterdeep Dragon Heist is going generally, but they're still built on situations. How do you have how do you handle each of the uh, main areas that they're going? How do they deal with the chase, which is uh, you know not great? How do you you know what, how do they approach the situation? And I think I think you can still like just imagine the road is really wide and not really narrow. And the wider the road is, the more there's room to move back and forth in the road, but they're still heading in one direction. So I hope that helps. Hey, my mom is here. Hi, mom. How are you? Everybody say hello to my mom. So that is Raymond C's question. We might come back to that. I'm going to look and, and see, and maybe we, maybe we hit that one again. Eloy C says, do you still roll in the open? Do you reveal the monster stats to your players? As I seem to recall you saying in a podcast, how has that changed the experience for you and your players? I do roll in the open. So the D&D Beyond Encounter Builder and a Combat Tracker now lets you roll dice and reveal those dice to the players in the combat log. And if you have Avre set up uh, and the campaign set up in Avre, it will pass it into Discord. But it essentially lets your players see what your roles are. And yeah, my, my, my funny statement is I don't cheat on roles, but I cheat everywhere else, right? And I think that that kind of still works for me. I, I don't reveal all the stats. I generally don't reveal hit points right? Because hit points are one of the dials. I generally don't reveal the dials and my four dials. Number of monsters, which you kind of have to reveal because they can see them. Number of monsters, hit points of monsters, number of attacks that monsters can inflict, and how much damage they inflict. And I tend to, those are my four dials for changing the difficulties or, or tweaking things. And I don't tweak them all the time, right? But if I feel like I need to change up the game for the pacing, either things are way too easy and they were supposed to be harder. I can turn things a little bit to the most. Or like, hey, that person's gotten three kills. This person's got none. Maybe they have just enough hit points so that that's the person who kills them. I'll do that. If like the monsters just are rolling really terribly, maybe suddenly they get an extra attack. I'll do that on occasion. Maybe the, the, the bandits all set their blades on fire with oil and now they all do an extra 2d6 fire damage on their attack so they hit a little harder. I might do that. But I'll, so I'll, I'll, I'll tweak those four dials, right? But I don't tweak the d20 roll. Right, very rarely. It certainly happens, right? And lots of people do, right? Lots of people will tweak the dial, the, the the role in order to, you know, change the pacing and make the game more fun, right? You should only ever do so if it's going to make the game more fun. I do re reveal armor class very often, right? Because I don't change the armor class, and I I want the players. It doesn't always work this way, but I'd love the players to recognize like what they need to roll on a die in order to hit a guy, so that when they roll the die, the die roll is the exciting part. This comes from Numenera right uh cypher system does this that money cook wrote a whole thing about how the 
the way that the uh, die the die rolling works in Numenera, it's all it's not quite Thaco like, but it's a little bit. Essentially, you have a target number you're going for, and then you have certain capabilities that your character can do that lower the difficulty down. Bang, 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 and and it does it in steps. And a step is essentially three a marker of three. So like if you, if you are able to reduce, you know, if your, if your weapon attack is able to reduce an opponent's armor by one step, that means it's three lower. And you know, now I have, I have to roll a nine instead of a 12, right? And then you can do things to lower it further. And his idea is all of the negotiation for how a, how a die roll should work should happen before the die is rolled so that the player knows what number is going to show up on that die that's going to be a success or a failure. And then you roll the die and you're immediately excited or, or, or not. And it, it breaks the idea of rolling a die and then doing a bunch of math and then figuring out that you failed, right? So I like that idea. And one of the ways to get there is to reveal the, the armor class or the DC. So like I will tell people that's going to be a DC 13 check. And then they know a DC 13, they look and say, I'm plus seven. So I have, you know, they don't often do the math, right? They don't say like, oh, since I'm a DC 13 and I'm plus seven, I only have to roll a six or better, right? And, but then they could and they go, hey, I got a nine, right? And they're, they're immediately happy. So I do reveal DCs. I do reveal armor class. I don't reveal much else. I do roll in the open. So if I'm rolling attacks, Almost all the time. The only time I don't roll attacks in the open is if I forget to set the thing because the combat tracker in D&D Beyond uh, defaults to hiding it. And then you have to specifically tell it to show it. And if you re reload the page for any reason at all, then it, if you reload the page for any reason, it's the default to you again and you have to set it. But generally speaking, I like to roll. The one thing I wish it didn't do is it shows the monster name that rolled and it shows... It shows all of the information that the monster did when it shows the rolls for like attack and damage. And damage I like to tweak. And I also like to reskin monsters. And I wish I could change the name of the monster so that if I happen to be using an ogre stat block to represent something else, it doesn't say ogre. That's a problem in the combat tracker. And I'm hoping that they will give more customized options so I can like right click on it and rename the monster stuff. But certainly at the table, and if I'm using any kind of die roller that isn't tied specifically to the monster, I roll in the open. And we deal with it. And if, you know, like I had a situation the other day where like a monster crit on a crazy powerful blast and nearly killed a character, would have killed a character, except that they re 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 recalled that they had cold resistance. And if they hadn't, they'd have been killed. And we were like, oh my God. And I was still trying to work with the player. Like, you know, why did you only have six hit points? Oh, well, we, we didn't take a short rest. And I'm like, oh, whoa, you had three hours. You would have taken a short rest. That certainly would have the opportunity. I was still trying to help the character not die because I was, I was surprised. And I felt like it was sort of a mistake because like, why wouldn't you have taken a short rest before you're going to travel off in the wilderness? You can create a custom monster and copy the existing stat block and then just rename it. Yeah, that's true. That's kind of a hassle. Like I want to, I want to be able to do it in the combat trap. It would, it would be nice. So do I roll in the open? Yes. And many DMs recommend rolling in the open. I, you know, I mean, it's up to you, whatever works best for you. I'm not, I'm not a stickler for, oh, you should always roll in the open, but I, I do because I want my players to see it. Right. And, and I, and there's, and as far as being able to tweak the story, either to kind of speed things up, uh, you know, cause like, Hey, we, you know, this for pacing, I guess most always pacing and beats, right. Do I, are the beats going in the direction I want the beats to go? Is the emotion of the players going in the direction I want the emotion of the players to be going like through beats? And is the pacing right? And and I will change things up based on that. And But the things I change, I'm able to change without modifying die rolls, right? Like the die rolls are, are after the fact. So like I said, 
I don't cheat on dice, but I cheat everywhere. So that is our third Patreon question today. I, it was fun. So expect to see more. I'm probably going to do this along every week. You know, we're, we're going to every week we're going to talk about the Arby's dice. We're going to see the current status of the Arby's dice. And we're going to do a product review. People really like me kind of doing a product review. I think I'm going to talk about Blades in the Dark next week. I really want to, I need to spend more time. I've, I've been meaning to sit down and really give that RPG a read. And I think we're going to talk about Blades in the Dark because I think there's a lot of aspects of it that we can steal and use in our D&D games that I think would be really great. And I think we're going to take a few patron questions. So if you like these, if you want sort of a, if you have a question that you want me to sort of dive deeper into and talk about, the way to do that is to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash slyflourish. Join as a patron and put your question there. The not, I don't, I don't get to every question. I certainly won't get to every question, but depending on the kinds of questions I get, I will either talk about them here or I will take them and separate them aside and do a whole video uh, just on that. So that is going to be a fun thing to do. And with that, I think we are done with the talk show today. So I want to thank everybody for coming and hanging out with me. If you enjoyed this video, uh, you can help me out in four different ways. First, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Second, you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube. Third, you can su support me directly by going to patreon.com slash Flourish and becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Or four, you, you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the Lazy DM's Workbook. Thank you all very much for watching the show today. Have a great day. <laughs>